This podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute and Davenant Hall, reimagining theological education. Visit davenanthall.com. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. Davenant Hall takes full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online courses. Students can simply audit a single class or enroll in a degree program, including subject-specific certificates, PhD supervision, and the flagship MLIT program, which includes pastoral tracks for Baptist, Anglican, and Reformed or Presbyterian ministry. Enroll in classes at any time during the academic year. Knowing that in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation, Davenant hosts regular residentials at their study center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of South Carolina. Registration for spring term 2024 classes running April to June is now open. Register by March 27th. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class with a two-hour Zoom class from expert professors each week. Spring term classes include Male and Female in Modernity with Alistair Roberts, The Reformation and the Modern World with Michael Lynch, Philosophy as a Way of Life with Joseph Minnick and more. Visit DavenantHall.com to find out more. That's DavenantHall.com. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, you are listening to The Mortification of Spin. We are so glad that you joined us today. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I'm joined, as always, by Amy Bird and Carl Truman. Well, we're excited today to uh, welcome to the program a guest whose work we've very much benefited from and appreciated. It is Dr. Michael Allen, who is the John Dyer Trimble Chair of Systematic Theology at the Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. Michael Allen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Todd. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. Well, Mike, we are excited about the work you've been doing. You, along with your colleague Scott Swain, have been editing a a series called New Studies in Dogmatics. It's an excellent series, by the way. Volumes that have been released, uh, one on the Doctrine of the Trinity by Fred Sanders and another volume on the Holy Spirit are both really outstanding works, and I would encourage anybody to get them. And uh, the next volume that is uh, on its way very soon, we understand, is on the Doctrine of Sanctification, and it is by you. So not only are you editing the series, you have authored this volume on sanctification, and the early buzz is very, very positive on it. I mean, we're hearing things like, you know, it's the greatest work since the Bible. Michael, I don't know if that's an exaggeration, uh, but we're here to my mother. Have you? <laughs> but we're hearing great things about it. Let me ask you, where did kind of the idea for the series, the new studies in dogmatics, where did that come from? And what are you and Scott Swain hoping to see come about from this series of books? 
Yeah, we looked at the landscape of different volumes out there, and there's a lot of a very good technical academic work. And then, as you all would be familiar and your listeners would be aware, there's oftentimes some very good pastoral work, but in terms of volumes that bridge the gap mm-hmm. and that connect classical resources and scriptural debates and really bring things together in a way that would help the pastor, the elder, the church leader. There's not a lot there. And we remembered that from a generation ago, G.C. Burkhauer's series, Studies in Dogmatics, mm-hmm. played that kind of role. Right. And we wanted to see if there would be a way to not a single author, but a team of authors to provide a similar parallel kind of resource today. And thankfully, we could look around and find folks who could do that kind of work and write that kind of volume on various topics. And we're really encouraged by the first two volumes by Chris Holmes and by Fred Sanders. And they're not alike in every respect, but they do fill that gap. And we think, hopefully, help churches and help Christians to better conform to the mind of Christ. Yeah. Michael, let me ask you, you chose to write a book on sanctification. Why did you make that choice? Why did you decide to undertake a project focusing on sanctification? Yeah, a couple of reasons. One was personal. I had just previously written a volume on justification that had come out of several years of wrestling with that doctrine. And sanctification seemed to be logically next, having written on Christology first and then justification second. But then there's a more public reason as well. Sanctification, as you're well aware, has been much debated in recent years, not just looking to maybe Roman Catholicism on the one hand or pietism or liberalism on other flanks, but within the conservative, reformed, and evangelical world, we've had massive problems. And that was very apparent to me. I began writing this book across the street from where the Liberate Conference would Mm. operate in South Florida and was very aware of the ins and outs and the practical effects of some bad teaching on sanctification. And so there's both a personal reason and motivation as well as a public sense that our community, especially in the evangelical and Presbyterian world that that I serve, that we need careful thought on this. Right. Now, I'm with apologies to my co-hosts, I'm, I'm kind of dominating You're here. You're hogging but, it up. Well, I'm, I'm hogging it, and that's you because— You need to be sanctified. Well, well, well <laughs> based upon listener um, feedback, I, I'm taking more of a role. Um, but, Michael, um, you brought up the topic of the Liberate Conference, and I just got to follow this just a little bit. Obviously, the founder of the Liberate conference in that ministry. He's in some senses uh, no, no longer with us, you might say. But the legacy, I think, remains. I'm a pastor in the PCA, and I can say that the influence of what we might refer to as the, as the liberate approach to sanctification, unfortunately, laid some roots into the denomination in which I serve. I wonder if you could just explain briefly, what are your primary concerns with what we might call this liberate approach to sanctification? Yeah. You know, it's it's something that I don't think began with Liberate, but yeah. for a variety of reasons, Tully and Chivijan had remarkable impact yeah. and charisma in presenting this case that has been voiced by others, especially in what's known as the radical Lutheran tradition of Gerhard Ferdi. And 
It has remarkable charismatic power to folks who've grown up in what they take to be a more legalistic environment or who have just felt as though they didn't measure up to mom and dad or society's expectations. So it really sells well, frankly, to folks coming from more fundamentalist legalist backgrounds or to folks who've grown up in sort of elite Northeastern culture, prep school environment sort of felt overwhelmed by the burdens of expectations. And it offers this word that, you know, Jesus has done everything, you needn't do anything, yeah. and that all is found in in the sufficiency of Christ. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. In one sense, of course, that's a great biblical word. The yeah. only catch being it's but a word. And <laughs> as soon as you stop talking there and you stop tracing out all that Jesus says and does and the way it fits with the broader canon, you find it very quickly becomes sort of a psychological mantra that's pretty removed from Jesus himself mm. and the way that he identifies and his apostles describe the work of the gospel. So a partial cure, you know, proves ultimately not to be a cure at all. And and I think in failing to get at the totality and the breadth of God's love for us in Christ, that it doesn't just justify, but it also sanctifies. It proves to be a real problem at a number of levels. Yeah. This is a doctrine that lay people struggle with all the time. So, you know, in paying attention to some of these debates academically, and then trying to also be that kind of gap that you're talking about in between, I think that a lot of regular people sitting in the pew struggle with, you know, what does holiness look like? And one thing I really appreciate about your whole series so far is that these kind of doctrines, you really connect to, you know, what our view is of God. Could you maybe talk about how important it is to have the right view of who God is to even understand something like sanctification and holiness? Yeah, Amy, I think that's really important because especially those who grow up don't have a really deep Christian formation, mm -hmm. they tend to think that holiness and talk of becoming holy is really just about conforming to the social mores of mm -hmm. maybe conservative or religious culture. Mm -hmm. Or maybe self-improvement. Uh, I, I, as a, a kid, moved from the deep Bible belt where I was born and lived for a few years to South Florida in Miami. And the differences of the culture were remarkable, and it really cued me into the fact that folks in the Bible belt could feel guilt over not living holy lives and conforming their lives to Christ in certain ways, whereas mm -hmm. a lot of folks in just much more post-Christian South Florida wouldn't even know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Words like holy literally have no meaning mm -hmm. to massive segments of the population. And I think that that's a reminder that holy is not an obvious word. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a word that takes its meaning from some basic beliefs about God, about how God creates, what ends and goals God has for his human creatures specifically, for the way God covenants or fellowships with us in certain covenant contexts. And so to explain sanctification and holiness, we've got to do a lot of digging underneath it and connecting it to more basic doctrines. Mm -hmm. And in a real sense, my book will probably feel strange to some people because I don't get around to some debates people probably think the book's about <laughs> until about three quarters of the way through it. Mm. But I take the time to have chapters on God and creation and covenant right, I appreciate uh, before that. we even get to Christ and the work of salvation. 
And I do that just because I think we we need good systematic theology for missiological purposes to That's be able good. to explain what do we mean when we use this very basic word, mm-hmm. holy? What do we mean when we speak of being set apart? Uh, is that is that just conforming to some kind of social expectation, or is it really rooted in something divine, something that is uh, tied to the action of God? So I think rooting all this in some basic Christian doctrines is absolutely crucial. Yeah. I grew up in a dispensational background, and so the way that it was, quote-unquote, solved there was that, you know, you can pray the prayer and be justified and, and maybe never grow in holiness or pursue holiness of any kind, or there's the other class of Christianity, of people who were more maybe self-improvers and who lived, quote-unquote, holy lives. And so that was very confusing for me growing up, seeing these two different classes, really, of Christianity and Christian living. Once saved, always saved, baby. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Pray that prayer. And, you know, that's obviously popular, this side of dispensationalism, but it's not new. Uh, Perhaps the text that has classically been most influential in in shaping my thought in this book is a a not often read text of Augustine's called On Faith and Works. And it's a remarkable piece where he's addressing the question of evangelism and discipleship. And basically, do you describe the moral life of the Christian as part of the sales pitch, or do you leave it like fine print and after someone has been baptized and converted, then you say, by the way, life looks different this side of the baptismal (laughs) font. And Augustine argues that you need to convey the way in which Christianity is a way and it involves discipleship, and you can't somehow suggest you just, you know, trust God and we'll get to obedience later. But he wants to avoid the idea of legalistic performance as well. And so there's this this remarkable paragraph. It's probably the most quoted thing in my book where he says, this is to preach Christ. And he says, it's to say everything that one must believe about Christ, not only whose son he is, from whom he takes his divinity, from whom his humanity, what things he suffered and why, what his resurrection means to us, what the gift of the Spirit means to us, but also what kind of members of whom he's the head he desires, he forms, he loves, he sets free, and he leads to eternal life and glory. And I think he's getting at the idea of what we could call the present tense of the gospel, that Mm -hmm. it is not to move away a hair's breadth from Christ to speak of how Christ by his Spirit is forming his people now. And that you haven't spoken of the sufficiency of Christ if you've only spoken in the past tense mm-hmm. of election and atonement or only in the future tense of judgment day and his standing in our place. But you also have to speak of the whole Christ, the Christ active in, in the present, the exalted Christ mm-hmm. who is desiring, forming, loving, setting free and leading us to life and glory. That's good. Pastoral question, Michael, sort of building on that. Uh, what role should sanctification play in assurance? I think for many of the pastors listening, that's probably going to be one of the, the key areas that they're faced with on a regular basis. How does sanctification, growth in sanctification, uh, connect to, to our assurance of faith? I think it certainly plays a role in texts like John 15, Jesus will speak of the one who abides in him and the one who loves him as one who loves his commandments. You get similar language in First John, of course. 
it's a piece of the puzzle. And so I actually think we can and should defend the practical syllogism, the idea that you are able to see fruit and thus you are given stronger assurance that you're a part of the actual tree. That said, it's not the first root of assurance, nor is it the only one. And you can look at other evidences of ones being saved. First John will begin, of course, with simply calling you to the objective Christ outside of yourself, finding assurance in knowing that he has come, he has acted, he's been proclaimed to you. You'll find other evidences in the fellowship of the saints and in the witness of the Spirit. But I do think we need to realize that the notion of fruit is a biblical one, and it can go awry. We can become navel gazers. Some people are, by personality and by experience in a variety of ways, inclined to overanalyze and to grow despondent. And so for them, one evidence might be a repentance of that and a practice protocol of leaning against over-scrutinizing. That, that might actually be, in certain respects, one facet of their growing in humility a sense of self-forgetfulness. But I think while we want to avoid legalistic versions of it or overly introspective versions of it, we can't get away from the fact that it's a biblical piece of evidence that's meant to help us make our calling and election sure. Yeah. I was going to ask, you know, Amy and I, I think we're raised similarly as far as growing up Baptist dispensationalist. You know, I, for me and a lot of people like me, if you grew up in a conservative you know, Southern Baptist Church in, in the South or in the West, there's very much a, you know, pray the prayer and you're saved kind of. A, in, in fact, that's that's not an overstatement at all. I mean, it was very much, you know, pray the prayer. If you prayed the prayer and indicated so by walking down this aisle, you're in period end of discussion. And so a question like, you know, is sanctification necessary for one's salvation or do you have to be sanctified to be saved? That would have been a a very upsetting and maybe even a nonsensical question for my ears growing up because I just didn't have categories for this. And Carl is touching it on it with that whole issue of assurance. You know, we were assured of our salvation if we prayed the prayer and quote, really meant it. That was your assurance of salvation. The problem is, is that if these people who are taught that actually start to really read the Bible, they're going to have a hard time finding that. And so how do you answer a question like, do you have to be sanctified in order to be yeah. saved? How, how do you handle a question well, like that? I think probably in most cases, what's driving that is a mangled view of what it means to say that we believe in salvation by faith alone, mm. which, of course, we do believe in right. salvation by faith alone or justification by justification, faith alone. Yeah. But biblically, faith does not refer to punctiliar profession, but to an ongoing, persevering trust in God. Mm. You see that, of course, in the way Hebrews 3 and 4 will describe the story of Israel and were warned of their falling into unbelief. Well, they didn't always express unbelief. They believed. And, uh, you know, the other side of the Red Sea, they're trusting God, believing his servant Moses, but they then grumble. And what we see is not that they never expressed any sense of, of profession, but rather that they didn't have persevering trust. And that's meant to be a warning to us. Uh, the author to the Hebrews tells us that uh, as long as it's today, it's a day for us to rest again in God, to trust again in God. And 
you see similar calls in 1 Corinthians 10 and other texts. So I think that the first thing we've got to get at is simply that the biblical idea of faith in the Old and New Testaments is not of a one-off occurrence, but rather of something that's effective in uniting us to Christ from the beginning, but that does have sustaining, persevering, imperfect, uh, but persevering uh, activity throughout our lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Could some of the confusion that people have be connected maybe to the way that we talk about what it means to, quote, be saved or, or what we mean when we talk about salvation? Because biblically, if you look at it, there are times where we could say, you know, being saved is is a reference to our having been justified. But there are other times when the biblical portrait of salvation has to do with this ongoing reality in our life that, that indicates sanctification, that, that ongoing work. And if that is the case, then Carl talked about pastoral implications. You know, pastors get these kinds of questions from people all the time, people whose consciences are burdened. And so they come to a pastor or it's very likely. And as a seminary professor, I'm sure you have students come to you asking pastoral type questions. And and so when the person comes and says, you know, I'm concerned that I don't see any evidence or I'm concerned that I'm not sanctified. How do we want to kind of coach them through that? Because there's a sense in which we have been sanctified, but we're also being sanctified. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that you know the notion of of that which has been done and that which is right. being done by God. Now we've got to hold on to both sides of that. You know, I mean, I think one thing that our American triumphalism, our sort of optimism, plays into is the idea that even lamenting and sorrowing over our sin is itself a sign of spiritual growth. Right, right. Now, that doesn't mean that anyone and everyone who comes in and says, oh, I've got so many problems, that mm -hmm. that is a manifestation of sanctification. I mean, everybody <laughs> right. knows they're troubled. Yeah. Everyone knows that they've got maladies and issues. Having issues is not the same as being a sinner. Yeah. I'm reminded of the line from the, the well-known Methodist ethicist, Stanley Harwas, who says, sin is a a theological achievement. He doesn't mean sinning is. He yeah. means diagnosing your struggle mm -hmm. as sin before Almighty God. That's actually a theological achievement. Mm -hmm. And texts like the Psalms are meant to help deepen and mature our sense that we are not right in and of ourselves. And so when that saint comes to me and they express struggles and worries and doubts, one element that I'd want to point out to them is that in many cases, they're taking up the words of the Psalms. And yes, they aren't fully holy yet in their behavior, but their sorrow and their lament, their struggle with that is itself a sign mm -hmm. of Christian grace, yeah. that the holiness they do have makes them all the more alert to the ways in which they live out of step at times. Yeah. Yeah. And that, of course, is the story of Luther, who can speak of how horrible he is, not because he's getting worse, but because he is coming to know God more profoundly. And thus, the ways in which he's out of step with God are suddenly more obvious to him. It's in growing closer to the perfect God that we realize the profundity of our imperfections. And that itself is not resolution, but it is growth. Yeah, because that can be really frustrating for the Christian. I mean, you want to grow in holiness, but it seems as the further along you're moving in sanctification, the more sin you discover <laughs> in yourself. Right. And, you know, there, you know, you can look back and see, well, there's 
there's definitely things that I can look at now that I'm used to take pleasure in that now, you know, I detest, but then you notice all these other layers underneath of sin that you didn't even realize. And that can be really frustrating for the believer. Just maybe wondering if holiness is even attainable. Yeah, and that itself is a a case where we can take it before God, and the Psalms give us words to, in faith, cry out. Mm -hmm. And the catch is, faith is not sight. That said, it's not the totality of sanctification. We do change, we do grow, Mm -hmm. and we are to exhort one another. So we don't want to reduce the battle and the struggle to simply acknowledging our plight. At at times, it also will mean real radical growth and change. And Mm -hmm. uh, Christians see that in different parts of their lives. And and part of Christian growth is realizing that different Christians will see that kind of growth in different facets of life. We won't all grow in just the same ways Mm -hmm. to the same extent. And that's where love and care and concern for our brothers and sisters is so crucial. Yeah. Like how do our other fellow congregants, how do we help one another on? I mean, I think of Romans 12, where we read, you know, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. And we kind of see in that section an advocating a promoting of one another's holiness. Like, how can we help one another in that way? And how does the, how do the ordinary means of grace fit into this? Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, I do think that the crucial thing to catch is that all sanctification, it's not of faith alone. More than just our trust is involved. But in texts like Romans 14 and Hebrews 11, we do see it is always by faith alone. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's only obedience that flows from trust that honors and pleases God, according to Hebrews 11:6. And so a way that we can help encourage others is to profess and proclaim and to remind one another increasingly as the day draws near of the one to whom we turn in faith and the one whom we follow in hope. You know, that's why those ordinary means of grace are so crucial. That's why the reality of the communion of the saints is by God's grace, life-giving, because we are so weak and dependent. We are created to draw encouragement and strength from the outside, not just eating and breathing, but religiously and theologically. And absent that, we will stumble, we will fall. And so Christian community, Christian worship, the Christian ministry of the word, these things are just absolutely crucial. You know, I remember what Paul says in Ephesians, and then especially in Colossians 3, that the word of Christ dwells richly to rich effect when people are expressing in song and in thanksgiving the hope they have in God through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that that kind of communal ministry of Christians to each other is absolutely Mm -hmm. fundamental. And sometimes it does take exhortation and calling someone out, and other times it takes encouragement and Mm -hmm. prodding one another along with words of hope. And it just takes maturity and discernment, I think, Mm -hmm. to provide the right diet over time and to learn how to give the appropriate word on various occasions. And pastors are called to minister the word to equip the saints for that word of ministry to building up the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so I do think Christians need to think about the idea of discernment and practical Mm -hmm. wisdom Mm -hmm. in encouraging each other on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. It's not a straightforward, simple thing. It's a matter for 
prayerful consideration. Yeah. And it's not just an individualistic pursuit. You know it when you see it, right? And mm-hmm. you appreciate it. Well, Michael, it's been uh, great fun interviewing you on what a topic that, of course, has been a perennial point of controversy since the Reformation, likely set to continue. No judgment on your book that I suspect it won't close the debate on sanctification. <laughs> but, uh, but thanks very much for writing it. I was struck by a phrase Amy used when she said, you know, sanctification is when you used to take pleasure in something, then you grow to detest it. I do remember a time when Todd and I used to take great pleasure in the podcast. And then Amy, Amy, joined, Amy joined the team and we now been the same. pretty much detest it. Uh, My righteousness but, points out all your sin. We're glad that she's an agent in our sanctification. Um, so, but uh, anyway, thanks very much for joining us, Michael. We'd like to recommend your book, uh, Sanctification, published by Zondervan's to our audience. If you visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, we're actually giving a few free copies away. And, of course, uh, one of the most biblical signs of sanctification is that uh, you make a small donation to the continuation <laughs> of this podcast. So please, while that you're on the bad. website make a donation there but thanks very much for joining us Michael we look forward to seeing the impact that your book will have both in the Reformed constituency and beyond and wish you well with all your work and current projects thanks for joining us my pleasure thanks for having me Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, the podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about He rode his bicycle over 1,000 Bibles before riding through a wall of flames. That sounds like something you do, Todd. I am all about that. I'm PCA. We do that kind of stuff all the time. (laughs) Confessionally reformed types haven't been calling themselves evangelical for quite some time. Is there an ideal evangelicalism in which they all participate that makes the name meaningful when applied to them? Whatever the question is, the answer is (laughs) go to a confessional reform. That's right. (laughs) That's right. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. (laughs) 